First of all, we're not allowed to talk about where Cthulhu came from, are we? <laughs> oh, you mean the game. Hey, uh, I just wanted to say that the reason Cthulhu is, uh, Call of Cthulhu is a fantastic investigation game is because it actually doesn't try to have any mechanics about investigation. Now, that's kind of a shocking statement, but when you think about it, uh, it's just a bunch of skills, right? And skill checks. I don't think there's actually any specific rules about investigation, whereas a system like Gumshoe actually uh, has rules about how much of a clue you give away based on how many points you spend. Uh, so it does have like investigation rules. And <clears throat> for me, excuse me, for me, I don't think a game needs, uh, well, I, I think I prefer not to have the uh, explicit rules about investigation. By the light of the stars, I was hunting again For a mean old troll in a third level den I'd been lucky so far, this was old school rules I should've been cautious, should've used my tools The path was leafy and the way was dim The DM cracked a smile but I ignored him And then... I fell into a spike pit let me unpack that just a little bit. Uh, investigation is just one of the many modes that you can slip into in a game, right? So you might have rules for combat and rules for investigation. Why not rules for other modes that you can slip into, like romance? Uh, and I think it's weird that... Well, maybe it's interesting. Not weird. It's interesting to see which systems get detailed in a game and which ones don't, uh, because they tell you what the game is about, per se. So it's, I guess it's a little fascinating that the original Call of Cthulhu doesn't have a lot of rules about investigation, even though it's assumed that most of your modes, or one of your primary modes, is going to be investigation. I kind of like a system, I like my systems a little freer these days, but there are times when I have liked systems that have uh, rules for every mode, if you will. Uh, but it's just, just an interesting thought. I've got to say, I always vacillate on this this question of design. Do you design for specific purpose or do you try and create utility and, and multifunction? And it's not just games, it's everything. Sometimes that real bespoke purpose-designed solution is just what you're looking for and then other times you're not sure what you're going to encounter and you want something way more flexible or something multi-purpose and I guess there's not really an answer and I can sympathize with Ray or anybody else who's wrestling with this kind of idea it's a little bit like trying to find that perfect game system or Anything else that you you might be seeking, really, in life, in your work, whatever. And I guess, really, thinking about it, there's no answer. The other point that Ray raised, this, this business of Cthulhu and investigation and whether there's specific rules, I think he's right, I don't think there is, and there is this bunch of skills that much I do know from playing the game now the astute listener 
will have noticed Ray at the top of the show, then Logan Howard with the Spike Pit theme song that he kindly performed for me and, and sent across. Haven't played it for a little while. And then a bit more Ray and now me. What this is, is now Logan Howard has, has been back on the air with Swordbreaker. This is this is me trying to hint at uh, potential Monster Brothers episodes because that's that's what we all really want, and it doesn't get said enough. If I bang on about it enough, perhaps, perhaps, fingers crossed, it will happen. Talking of monsters, I've got a monster episode for you today, folks. Loads of awesome call-ins with me trying to do my best to come up with some sort of intelligent response. Hmm, easier said than done. But before I get to that, I want to welcome to the pit crew my newest patron over on the Spike Pit Patreon. It is Eric Salsweedle. Now, that is a name from the past. He's been on Spike Pit. We had an interview ooh, a long time ago. I'm not sure what episode, but check it out. He was on his way to work trying not to drive into deer, if I recall correctly. Also got his own podcast called the Amiga 3D Chicken Coop. It's a sort of sporadic production, but he's a family man with a tight schedule, and there's quite a few of us who know what that's like. And even if you're not a family man, modern life, you're getting into a tight schedule, I'm pretty sure. In fact, it's the bane of the gamer, so let's get on to talking about gaming. First up, Mr. Loco Ludus himself, Barney. Hi Colin, I'd just like to pick up on Judd's call about perception checks and this is another game designer call in because I've been thinking about that very issue and to cut a long story thought a long story thought I've been thinking of perception in terms of immediacy and searching perhaps as something that takes a little longer. Now, I'll just go on to another call. Obviously, these two things, the perception and the search, uh, bleed into each other. And so another aspect of this is that I've been thinking about them as multipliers so the relative success of your perception check would multiply how much you'll get out of a search perhaps and I think that's quite an interesting idea but failure still got to be a thing right so one aspect of that, I think, could, should, could be that when failing, <coughs> as uh, Judd points out, something 
something happens. But that thing that happens could lead to another clue or another bit of information. But I do recall also, I think it was our man Dave Aldridge talking about something like floating clues. It's a bit like um, arse gravy there. It sounds a bit like arse gravy, floating clues. But bits that can appear in different places in different circumstances. And I think that's really important. I'm going to leave it there. See you. Bye. I hope you're well. See you. It took a little while for the penny to drop on this one, but I think it's a great idea, this uh, this multiplier, multiplier that Barney's talking about. I'd never thought quite as deeply as that. The most I'd ever done was to consider perception and investigation as one being kind of passive a lot of perception that I come across in my games of fifth edition rely on that the passive perception concept whereas investigation is always really active and I'd never really considered how that affects time. And the, the thoroughness of investigation seems quite obvious. You know, that seems understandable. And the instantaneous nature of a, a passive feeling, it's just something that hits you straight away. But combining the two and using some sort of multiplier, that's quite fascinating. And I'll be keen to hear what Barney does to further this kind of exploration in his mind, this pondering. I know the um, these checks are notoriously tricky at times and we've got some more call-ins looking at this this sort of area of RPGs. Hey Colin, it's Laren. I was just listening to your episode where Judd commented about uh, finding clues with a perception role being problematic, but whether or not people get the clue fully or, you know, get out of the room with it, being based on a perception check makes more sense. And I realized that one of the things I love about playing in games with Jeff is that he is really good at rolling with what his players do. It always feels like he's completely on our side. It always feels like it's a game where everyone's input is welcome, and I just love that. I think it might be because PBTA is a flexible system. I'm not sure. But, you know, he's run other games, and he's the same way. So, I don't know. I love that about the way that he GMs, and I know that if I ran a game... In thinking about doing so, I know that when I do it, I don't think I'll be able to be that flexible, but we'll see. Just got to say, it sounds like um, Liren's super fortunate to be able to play in so many of Jeff's games. He sounds like a, a super competent GM and has struck a really good balance with the way he approaches the flexibility in his games. And Liren mentions his flexibility and I think it's crucial you've got you've just got to strike the right balance and I don't think that's always too easy 
if you're too flexible, perhaps a session can lack structure and just sort of fall apart at the seams. And if you're inflexible, then folk can feel straight jacketed. And sometimes a system can help a little bit more than at other times. And and it's not about this uh, light rules, heavy rules type of thing either, because I think sometimes having the rules written down, people can find that helps them with flexibility because they're not hampered or restricted by their own imagination or their own ability to sort of solve problems and stuff. So I don't think it's a simple thing, and it's one of those cases of experience and practice like, well, pretty much everything else. Hey, Colin, Jason here. Just listened to episode 315 of Pushing the Envelope. And, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm not a huge fan of Gumshoe. I think there are great ideas in there. I think there are things you can pull out. Like, look at Knight's Black Agents. You know, things like the, the way to set up conspiracies and mysteries are wonderful. And the ideas of the ways to find clues are good. But you can import those into any game. And I'm not real thrilled with the other mechanics in the system. So I think it's worth buying something like Knight's Black Agents. But I think i just steal ideas from it and tack it onto a, a system I like better. So I know that's kind of a negative opinion, but it's the honest opinion. I've been reading A Dirty World lately, which is a game designed to run noir, <coughs> excuse me, like detective stories and detective noir stories, uh, film noir stories, using the or system, the one-roll engines. I'm not sure how great that'll work either. I'm interested to give it a shot eventually, but yeah, I, I think you you buy something, like say, Knight's Bike Agents might be the, the, the right one to buy and lift that those ideas and just tack them into your game that you're happy with all the other mechanics for. So, just a thought. Um, as far as Andy goes, and Andy's a good guy. I need to research and read the 7th edition Call of Cthulhu book and see if it does talk about that the intent of the game system is for the GM to take control of the characters. If it is, then, you know, I can't criticize him for saying that. So I, I've got to research before I comment further on that. But Andy's a good guy, and there's no doubt he runs a lot of Call of Cthulhu, and he does a great job at it. So anyhow, enjoy the show. Take care. Talk to you soon. I've got very little experience of the gumshoe system. I've only played Bubble Gumshoe the one time, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. In fact, I was impressed enough to buy the book. It does, doesn't hurt the fact that I think Evil Hat do a really nice job of producing these lovely little digest-sized books, which I'm a total sucker for. I've tried to kick the habit, but whenever I see them, I'm super tempted. Although, Knight's Black Agents and any more gumshoe books, I don't really feel the need to possess. Probably for the reason that Jason has explained. I can just lift out some of those ideas, perhaps, and, and put them in something else that I'm running, a system that I'm happy with. 
it's always a little bit difficult for me to to break into new systems. M- my players kind of get settled into their ways. Uh, I get settled into my ways and find the um, the learning curve for new systems a little bit off-putting at times. Plus, with some of the uh, the big publishers. They do, you know, they put out a lot of material and you kind of like, you get invested into the game and, you know, it's it's obviously deliberate marketing, but there's like this tie-in and if 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 you're kind of like watching your spending on your hobby, uh, you, you are aware of, of that investment and it kind of like, you know, it is a little bit restrictive which is mm, a bit shady, really, but I guess it makes good business sense. As for Mr. Goodman and his seventh edition, Call of Cthulhu, it's all it's all a bit of fun, poking fun at him. I felt a bit bad the other day, but it soon passed. I'm all right now. He <laughs> uh, it, it, it is hard on himself, and you've got to admire the guy for like uh, bearing his soul and just you know just trying to be the best gm he can asking himself a difficult questions and and poking other people to you know maybe push us all to do a little bit better uh, i don't recall him ever saying anything about cthulhu being a game where you have to take control of people's characters however uh, you're on your own with that one, Jason. You'll have to look into that and find the necessary evidence to pass judgment. Uh, I uh, I, I want to decline to comment. Hey, Colin. It's Laren from Updates from the Middle of Nowhere. You know, I'm, I've been listening to your last couple of episodes this morning while I was getting ready to go. And um, I... You know, a lot of the games I've played have been PBTA, and I really like the way PBTA handles things like you want to investigate something. Uh, We've been playing, uh, well, we had been, we're not currently playing it, but um, we played a whole bunch of Monster of the Week, and the way they do investigate, I really like, because there's not just you did good or you did bad. They have um, kind of a graduated system where uh, you... I can't remember the exact wording. I wish I had the sheet in front of me, but now I'm in the car driving where I have to go this morning. Um, I'll have to remember. If I remember, I'll go get it and call back and uh, read you what the options are. I just realized I think I might have the PDF, so maybe I can look there. But anyways, it's a graduated system where you can get uh, a clue. You can learn what you want to learn. But you can learn it outright, or you can learn it with a cost, or you can not learn anything at all. And I just don't remember the exact words they use. But I really like that system because I feel like um, in the games that I've played that have investigation that aren't like that, it seems like you either get it or you don't, and that's that. And I kind of like the fact that there's some middle ground in uh, the Monster of the Week system. I'm trying to think we played another PBTA that had an investigate activity or, you know, like action on the basic move page two. And I don't remember which one it was. Anyway, just my thoughts on that. Another game that I've only ever played once, thoroughly enjoyed. And 
I'm sorely tempted to pick up. I've resisted the urge, I still haven't pulled the trigger, and that is Monster of the Week. I guess my hesitation is, realistically, I don't know if I'm ever going to get it to the table, but it just keeps niggling away at me. It is, of course, a Powered by the Apocalypse game, as Liren mentions. If you're not familiar, that's a 2D6 system. 1 to 6 is generally a sort of a fail. 7 to 9 is a success at cost. And then 9 and above is like a success. Okay, future Colin here. Obviously, I misspoke. 7 to 9 is usually success at cost. Then 10 plus is success. It's not always quite like that, and there there is some some more subtleties, but it brings me to a point I uh, I'm interested in this idea of binary or non-binary resolution. So it, the pass fail that's your lot. Uh, it's a misconception, perhaps that D twenty is like that because you do oftentimes have at least a, a critical result. Some people play with a fumble as well on a, on a natural one. It's a, kind of an auto-fail in uh, D&D 5th edition. Um, but some people will play with crazy crit tables and stuff like that. Not a fan. If that's something you enjoy, fair play to you. The the binary idea, though, just this pass-fail, it's, it's, it's something that was in the early, earliest OD&D type things. I think even in uh, the clones of white books, things like Swords and Wizardry, fantastic medieval adventure game, I'm pretty sure they don't have critical hits. I could be wrong on that one. So you you are either passing or failing. There's no something happens if you hit exactly the number other than it's a success. Um, you've got no, oh, that was a close thing. Oh, that was a, oh, you, you just failed. I'm going to, you know, award you some sort of gradation of success. And this is another thing I vacillate on. For some games, I I really like the clarity of of the binary role, and then other times, just like Liren's talking about that kind of fail forward or succeed with a cost, just sort of opens the door to more things. The other thing I quite like is when you uh, you roll the dice, and it's not so much about the target number. But maybe the role is just triggering things in an encounter, or so. For example, uh, you might trigger a special power on a monster if you miss and it's an even result, or you miss and an odd result, or vice versa. Maybe you're character has special powers that are triggered on a hit or a success with an even or success with an odd 
and I've noticed uh, in Adventures in Middle Earth and some of the five E adventures that I'm looking at now, there is um, a kind of a, a little bit more nuance in the roles. So you pass, but if you pass by a certain amount, you get this. If you so you know you you've got good passes and better passes and magnificent passes if you see what I mean. Hey Colin, it's Laren. I'm listening to your episode and I have to tell you, I watched a show recently called Enola Holmes and it's on Netflix and it was so good. It's about Mycroft and Sherlock Holmes's sister Enola. So I guess it's based on a book. I didn't even realize there was ever a book about their sister, but it is really good. And it made me think of the, you know, it has the um, solving a mystery kind of thing, of course, you know, <laughs> of course it would, but it's really good. I really thought it was well done. I enjoyed it a great deal. So anyway, if you have a couple hours to spare, I want to say it was two hours long, but it was really worth it. So uh, anyway, speaking of mysteries, Hey, Colin, it's Rob from Down in a Heap, and I haven't been listening to podcasts much lately, um, so I'm just catching up, and I came across your uh, review of Eldritch Tales and really enjoyed that. But I wanted to mention or ask you if you have ever came across Mask of the Red Death. That was a box set that TSR did back in the second ed uh, days that was... Um, adapting D&D to a gothic earth setting that had, you know, all kinds of horror and Cthulhu-esque uh, elements to it and had, like, professions and skills that were more based in uh, a Victorian because it was set in, like, the 1890s. Um, but I thought it was pretty well done, pretty cool. Never had a chance to get it to the table, but it's kind of scratching an itch now. So, anyway... Thanks. See ya. Now put these two messages together. First from Liren and then Rob C from Down in the Heap. First of all, really good to hear Rob is back on the airwaves. He's putting out some episodes, uh, doing some call-ins, and he seems to be well on the road to recovery from his like terrible ordeal with COVID. If you're listening to this, folks, Rob has been at pains to mention it's no joke. It's not a pretend thing. Uh, he's urged people to follow the advice of the doctors and, and you know, be sensible out there. Luckily, I have not had any really direct run-ins with it. There's a few kind of friend-of-a-friend examples that uh, are quite chilling and tragic that I know about. But fingers crossed, myself, my family, we're managing to stay safe. Despite the bit of uh, trepidation and I had, I had and the concerns around the kids going back to school. Liren, yeah, Enola Holmes, talking of the family, that's something we all sat down and watched. I did enjoy it. It's it's difficult for us to find stuff to view as a family. It's either pretty dark and and violent, or it's just 
kind of too childish and and, and kind of um, not very entertaining for the the older kids or ourselves. It's a it's a tricky one to, f- to find a film that that's good for the whole family. And getting back to Rob, his recommendation, uh, that second edition product, Mars of uh, Red Death, sounds very um, unusual for a, a two E product, and I'm I'm intrigued by the idea of it and. When I get a minute, I think I'll see if I can track down some more information. So thanks for that, Rob. Uh, I'm always interested to see game systems doing something a little bit away from their kind of normal fare. And uh, perhaps if anybody else knows of similar examples where sort of Dungeons & Dragons has taken a foray off the rails, um, call in, let us know. Do what Rob did. Now, talking of D&D. Hey Colin, it's great to hear you back on the main core of what Spike Pit's all about, talking about D&D, which is fantastic. Now, I wanted to quickly answer your question about what does 5e as a badge mean? I uh, just wanted to say that for me, when I see that badge, it simply means that the basic mechanisms of 5th edition are in play. So I'm talking those six core stats, the rolling d20 roll high, the uh, advantage disadvantage mechanic, use of hit points, and you know that sort of core of how you do stuff, and that's the limit of my expectation because, like you, I've noticed that I've got quite a few five E based products now, um, and invariably they change stuff. Uh, some of the mechanisms, um, the best one for that being Doug Cole's uh, fantasy game, but um, essentially. All it means to me is the mechanisms are in play. And so a lot of time, I'm not actually that bothered. There you go. Get- Sounds to me that Chase summed that up quite nicely. It, he's, he's hit the main points. And I think that is what I'm expecting to see in something with the 5e badge. And I think 5e really is its own thing, separate from 5e Dungeons and Dragons. There's there's definitely a distinction there to be made, at least in my mind. And that kind of raises another question in my mind. For the people that don't so much like 5th edition Dungeons and Dragons, because maybe, you know, the the abundant character choices and some of the stuff that I feel gets addressed if you if you play basic rules, fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons, or you just play with like the the five E essentials set, they strip back a lot of a lot a lot of the stuff that people have issue with, and and I think in some ways that that's why. I'm quite enamoured with Adventures in Middle-earth. It takes some of the stuff that I've never been super into with Dungeons & Dragons. I've not not been anti-spells, for example, 
But that's something that I struggle with. I've talked about it before. I I know that some people don't like a lot of the new races that, that are out there for D&D now. Something like Middle-earth. It, it cuts right back and you've just got the stuff that's in, in Tolkien's Middle-earth, obviously. Um, so I think it's interesting. You know, are we looking at necessarily a boom in Dungeons and Dragons or are there quite a lot of people out there that are just a fan of the 5e system in the way that the 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 d20 boom happened I don't know there clearly is a, a, a lot of fans for Dungeons and Dragons but I think there is maybe like another set of fans perhaps myself of just 5e as a kind of core system, be that the SRD or the the OGL content. I don't know. But Hey there, Colin. It's John here from the Red Dice Diaries. Just listening to your latest episode where you were talking about the, the sort of soulmonger plot in the Tombs of Annihilation slash sort of jungles of Chult. And I've got to say, I pretty much agree with you. I remember when I was playing through that campaign with um, Andre Martinez's group um and when we sort of that the revelation was revealed that you know all of the the souls were going into the soul monger to prevent resurrection i've got to admit there was a part of me that was like so what i don't think i've ever played in a DD game where i've had a character that's been resurrected after death i normally have a character that dies i move on i play a different character so it never really seemed like a big thing to me anyway, although I could see why they wanted to have the plot contrivance there. Anyway, dude, just thought I'd ring in and drop that on you. So take care, and I'll catch you soon. So impeccable timing as ever. John Large, my old buddy, coming in with Resurrection, and that is a prime example of something from Dungeons & Dragons that I've never really liked. It's It's... A major factor in the Tomb of Annihilation plot. And, uh, yeah, just don't like it. Bind it off. Got another plot going in my jungle game. So we'll see how that pans out. But uh, I thought that was very apt, considering what I was just pondering in, uh, in regard to Che's calling. Now, I wouldn't ordinarily accuse Carl of running a railroad, but that is exactly what he did on his last adventure. We were playing Down Darker Trails, which is Call of Cthulhu variant or whatever you call it when it's Call of Cthulhu inspired. And I, um, I've been wanting to play that, and we had a slight change of plan. We were going to play Invictus. We were a number of players down and Carl kindly offered to run us through uh, four hours to Reno and it was set on a train. <laughs> How appropriate. With all this talk of railroads, we were actually on a railroad playing um, a posse of uh, recently deputised investigators and we had a blast. I thoroughly enjoyed that game. 
it, it got uh, got kind of quite spooky. It was not immediately obvious what was going on, and uh, we had good fun poking about on this train, and there was some uh, pretty uh, crazy stuff that went down. I won't say too much, don't want to spoil it, but uh, Carl is picking up now on the topic of railroads. He listened to an earlier, uh, uh, an older episode from my back catalogue and has, has called in with um, some of his thoughts on the subject. So let's listen to what Carl's got to say. I don't know exactly when the term railroad was used, but <clears throat> I can say that probably at some point in the second edition realm, there was a game design implementation that the story was the thing. And the adventure was a story. It was like a series of plot points that you went from one to the other. And at some time of the story, there was no player agency. The best example that I can think of is the adventure freedom in Dark Sun. Basically, like it's it mirrors the events of the novels that were associated with Dark Sun and the players are just bystanders and they can't do a damn thing and they have really no place um, in the adventure except as watchers. The NPCs do everything. It was It's pretty disappointing, but probably that's where these kind of adventures start. I mean, I just gave an adventure um, example, but I'm sure there are some, as a, you know, caveat, I'm sure there are better D&D scholars than I am out there. I'm just trying to riff from memory um, since, hey, this is a drive-by, right? We're riffing, we're rapping. I don't rap. Maybe you do. Come on, ride the train. You ride it. Come on, ride the train. Right Hi Colin, Goblin Senshman here. So my adventurers have a garden that has a very clay soil and they're removing a large um, sort of slab of concrete from a, uh, fr- from a path. It's about, I don't know, good eight inches thick. It has hardcore underneath. If that hardcore is not removed and sort of the the hole's back filled with um, just soil, so about eight to ten inches with some hardcore under it. Will that bit of grass have looked patchy compared to the rest of the garden? Because uh, obviously I'm interested to know. I mean, the adventurers are interested to know if, if, if that hardcore needs to go because that's going to be a lot of extra digging for them. You know, obviously they've got 18 strength and infinite time, so it's not a problem for them. But, you know, I think just for that, uh, you know, v- v- you know, no, uh, realistic kind of, Point, it'd be good to know. Cheers, fella. <laughs> Hope you're doing well. Bye. So that's a bit of a curveball from Mr. Henchman. I think your players will probably be all right there. A clay soil is going to s- sort of dry out a bit slower than hardcore with topsoil over it. So this hardcore, if left in, might result in an area of turf drying out a little bit quicker. Whether it'll look patchy, most of the time, I don't think so. If you've got eight to 10 inches of soil there, the grass is gonna have a good depth for its roots. Uh, I mean, grass 
will benefit from good drainage. I believe football pitches or places like that are often laid over some fierce drainage, but then they're getting a lot of irrigation and stuff like that. Not a problem for adventurers. If if uh, if your party are worried about this, maybe they need to get that hardcore out. But unless I'm much mistaken, I can't see that being a problem down the line, really. If you think about it, quite a few houses, dungeons, places like that need some drainage. And typically the downpipes from a building will uh, run through uh, French drains or uh, soakle uh, pipes laid in gravel down to a quite often sort of a metre square pit at the back of a, of a building with all rubble and free draining material for the purpose of taking rainwater off of the top of one's castle for example, and then it's backfilled with topsoil and a lot of the time in the grounds of wizards' towers and things, they they then turf over said soak away, as legend would have it, these things are called. And for many years, legends have told, are told of how, gra- how green the grass grows, how lush it is, in fact, Peasants come from miles around just to mow, said Healthy Sward. So we were chugging along quite nicely and then up pops henchman. I don't know what it is, maybe something to do with the goblins, but he's derailed the episode. That's quite enough of that. I can do no more. Big thanks to everybody who's called in. Awesome callings, awesome response. I couldn't do it without you guys. Also, I want to say a big thanks to the pit crew, the folks over on Spike Pit Patreon, with their generosity and ongoing support. I really do mean it when I say you keep me going and growing. Don't forget, we've got Eldridge Tales for the, the people that have volunteered to jump in on that that pit crew session that's coming up this saturday so i'm looking forward to that playing some eldritch tales with the designer joe salvador and then last but not least i want to say a big thanks to you the listener for taking time out of your day to listen to old spike bit take care and i'll catch you later